0: Well, hello, and welcome to episode 25 of the Bomb City Podcast. My name is Nick, and my guest this episode is Professor Denise Sandoval. Professor Sandoval is an instructor at CSU Northridge. She's an expert in Chicano, Chicana studies, and lowriding. She's curated a few events you guys may have seen, like the most recent one at the Peterson Museum, The High Art of Riding Low. She's doing another one right now at a gallery called CAM in Raleigh, North Carolina. It's called uh, Viva Viclas, so it covers lowriding and motorcycles. Really interesting stuff. I think it's fascinating that there are still some open questions in car culture and automotive history, particularly when it comes to lowriding. Now, in my humble opinion, I think that's because the origins of lowriding were never really documented in any meaningful way. So looking back from 2020 and trying to figure out how everything got started, it's very complicated. These are very complicated topics to begin with. So I was absolutely thrilled to get to talk with an expert on this. I hope you guys enjoyed the interview. There's a lot of information in here. I think it is very cool. So thank you guys so much for listening, and thank you so much to Professor Sandoval for giving us your time. I I had a really great time recording this. We're going to jump into this immediately, talking about one of my favorite subjects, the origins of lowriding. Okay, so here it is. Hope you guys enjoy it. This is episode 25, Professor Denise Sandoval. I was reading through uh, the Lowriding Tradition book, and I saw it in a couple places. There's as far as like the things that me and my friends argue about, no one that I know can show a, a clear path from cars in the Pachuco days to low riding in the 60s. Some people say, you know, it comes from uh, from custom cars in general and then low riding takes on its own uh, form in the 60s. Some people say this started, you know, in in the in the back streets of L.A. in the 40s and then eventually was recognized as a mainstream thing in the, the late Fifties uh, or sixties. So I I was more of talking culturally. Uh, yeah, about I mean, riding. like
1: just to give. Yeah, we could talk about this, but just like for instance, like the oldest lowrider car club in Los Angeles is the Dukes, and I think they might still be the oldest uh, in continued existence. Hmm. And so, like this group started, uh, which now we consider South LA, um, south of downtown, and they grew up in the area of the Pachucos of the famous Sleepy Lagoon case of nineteen forty-two. So if you talk to Fernando, sadly, Fernando passed away in 2010, but, like, the L.A. guys would call their cars Pachuco cars. They didn't call them lowriders. The lowrider, like, what you get from that book, I mean, it was a label that was given by the police. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's – and the connection between the Pachucos and the lowrider, you know – I mean, that was obviously visualized in Lowrider magazine. It's, it's always been there in LA because pachuca culture was big here. Pachuca culture was big in the Bay Area, you know, in Oakland, up in there too, as well, and in San Diego on the West Coast. So, but, and, but in the side net, like these guys in the 40s were <clears throat> sort of like customizing cars. I mean, really car customization, like at a full scale. Even though hot rodding, obviously hot rods happen before low riders. So like mm-hmm. some of even the stuff I read that has no there's no way to prove this of of historical like the people in Texas say, Oh, you know, low riding started in the thirties in El Paso. But how are you gonna prove that? I don't know how you're gonna prove that, you know? Mm-hmm. And <laughs> El Paso, Texas has even claimed Pachuco identity. So I don't know. It's just crazy. But I think for me, it's like it makes more sense to look at post-World War II, um, Mm -hmm. just to see the boom in sort of like car culture, car customization. But obviously that was started a lot earlier with like hot rods. Right.
0: Right. Right. I think for for me, the thing that makes it confusing is like the 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 Chicano identity. I I don't think was something that was was talked about up until the at least the mid 60s. Uh, Well, is that about right?
1: Well, that, but that's what I just said, is that's why the lowriders call their car bachuco cars. But Chicano, the term Chicano, to correct you, actually was used um, in the 1920s it, to mean a lower class Mexican. And it actually was um, started as like a derogatory term in the 20s. Hmm. So to be honest, there's people that Chicano identity goes back even further. But what you're speaking about is where it became politicized. For a civil rights movement. So those are like kind of like two different things. You know, kind of like where the Black Power movement took a term black that had sort of a derogatory label and reaffirmed it and redefined it on their own terms. So Chicano is actually a term that has early roots in Texas and LA in the early 20th century.
0: I didn't know that. That's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Yep. So yeah, I, another thing that I that I struggle with is the language of this uh, this part of the world, in general, it's so confusing to me. Um, like, what do you mean? Like, I I think there are people who would assume that if someone was working on a car, and they were coming from a from a predominantly Mexican neighborhood in the 40s, that just that mm-hmm. cultural grounding of the of where the car was being built uh, would lend it more towards uh, towards being a lowrider than being a, a custom. I don't know that I agree with that. That's an argument that I've heard. So, Look,
1: if you go if you know your LA history of car customization is Chicanos, Mexicans, blacks, they were hot rod hot riders too. So like we weren't just like low riders, like they were into car custom. They I mean the guy that dropped put the first hydraulic system, Ron Aguirre out in mm-hmm. San in San Bernardino, Chicano, he was like into those kind of extreme car customs back in the day. So I think it's I think it's like sort of reassessing of like what you think the popular perception is now. But if you go back to the history, like Chicanos were hot rodding in the dry lake beds out in like the San Bernardino area in like the 30s and 40s and 50s, you know. So um, and there were there were hot rodders that were black and Chicanos in L.A. So I would imagine that that also existed in other parts of urban areas that were black and, Ch- and Mexican-American.
0: Yeah, yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. And I, maybe the thing that I'm missing is just the, the political uh you know, definition of of what it means to be chicano.
1: Yeah, so at that case, you need to take a course cuz I can't really <laughs> define it like yeah. literally and it's not an easy it's not an easy question. I would totally suggest take a class on Chicano history at the local up there in the Bay Area. You have tons of community colleges that you could take courses in to learn. So you have to do reading, you know.
0: <laughs> sure.
1: So what I can do now and I teach history, so things are not easy answers for me.
0: Yeah, for sure. So Yeah. 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 So I think history,
1: history is complicated as it should be. And I think like, it's important to sort of like unpack, like even like the questions that you asked me that are based on not historical evidence, you know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. of, of reality. So, um, but you wouldn't know that because there's no books on Chicano hot rodders, you know, (laughs) nobody's writing about it, but you get a good taste of it of like how it exists in the present with the whole sort of Latino rockabilly, you know, rat rod scene, that's like a mix of low riding and hot rod, you know?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I don't know if you have that up there.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah. There's, there's a big, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. big scene here.
1: Yeah. So they're not low riders. You know, I would say they're more like hot rod, but they do even use Pachuco culture, you know, and Cholo culture and some of the aspects of low riding, but the style is completely different and nowhere are those low riders
0: so where did uh, where did you start connecting with the with low riding and with the, the Chicano culture uh, in general?
1: Well, I'm Chicano, <laughs> and my and my family uh, comes from East Los Angeles, right? So ac- actually, like I live right off of Whittier Boulevard now, which is that was ahead head of you know low riding and cruising in the 50s and 60s and 70s, and even in parts of the 80s, and even to today. Um, yeah, so it's really it's in my family roots. I mean, low riding was something that was always in my environment. Um, I grew up in La Puente, which is about 20 minutes from East LA. Lowriders were there too as well. So um, it was always something that was part of my neighborhood. but my family did not own cars and they weren't into low riding.
0: When did you, uh, when did you decide to, to pursue this uh, academically?
1: Well, I think it all started when I was, I actually graduated from UC Berkeley, did my undergrad there, and um, that's where I saw my first old issues of Lowrider Magazine. This was like mm, 94, 95, no, 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 excuse me, earlier than that. This was like 92, 93, and and that's where I found uh, in the library there at UC Berkeley some old issues of Lowrider Magazine, and so Mm -hmm. I was very much interested in how the early magazines have you seen the early magazines yeah okay yeah they're like kind of like these history like community history books right of like daily life and it's so much more about like people and there's like short stories and you know all the letters to the editor I found fascinating um, and so I, that kind of piqued my interest but it was literally probably in 96 Six ninety seven. um when I was working on my PhD in cultural studies at Claremont, and I was taking a class on popular culture, and then they asked me, you know, you're going to have to write a paper on uh, a cultural space. So I, I went to Tower Records back in the day when you could go to Tower Records <laughs> to get inspiration, and I walked by the magazine rack, and I saw a Japanese Lowrider magazine for the first time. So um, as I opened up Japanese lowrider magazine, I was like, what the heck is this? It's like total (laughs) Chicano culture in Japan, you know? Mm -hmm. So I kind of had the idea to do, uh, write a paper for that class. And then, you know, I'm so old that, you know, you actually had to go to the library to do research back then. (laughs) And I, and I found no books, you know, I found a couple academic articles. So I sort of realized like, oh, this was an area that needed to be researched, but I, Didn't decide then that it would be the topic of my dissertation, um, just because, like I said, even though it's my culture, it's where I come from, like, I don't have any contacts, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And then literally, I wrote that paper in, like, spring of 98, fall of 97, 98, and then six months after that, the Peterson Automotive Museum was looking to have the first exhibit on lowrider culture and lowrider cars at the Peterson, and this was in 98, and, um, I applied and I got the gig. So that was being a curator on that exhibit allowed me sort of an, an entree into the low rider scene. And, um, that's sort of how I got started officially. And then, yeah, I've just been full in it for over 20 years.
0: Awesome. For that exhibit, is that the, the Arte Estilo, uh, the low riding tradition? Yeah.
1: The Arte en Estilo, it opened up in 2000. Yes.
0: Awesome. I got the book and <laughs> I got it sitting in front of me, um,
1: I know it's a cool book, huh? It I really was so, is. I mean, and it's crazy because that's the only catalog that Peterson has put out. Um, like the last two exhibits, they—I don't know. It's a whole other discussion, but
0: yeah, if it was a hot them. red
1: show, we would have got we would have got a catalog. I know that much.
0: <laughs> right. I got the the pamphlet for the the high order writing low next to me. It's it's also very cool, but it's it's. Uh, I
1: love it. I know. I I got really lucky because. Um, yeah like they allowed me to like i really wanted something that was more in-depth in you know the gallery guide yeah um for the for that because with that show it was more of an art show right so we were highlighting Mm -hmm. how artists particularly chicano artists how they sort of um, engage in defining and redefining um lowrider culture through the car right the car Mm -hmm. as object and subject So, you know, meaning that there are going to be people coming into that space that do not have a history in Chicano art uh, or language and knowledge. And so it was important to sort of provide that for our viewers. But um, the one thing that I really respect about the Peterson with this last show is that we had a a over-the-top Chicano art exhibit there in a very (laughs) white space
0: you know yeah, yeah, and they didn't, like... and they
1: didn't ask me they didn't ask me to tone down the language or to change anything to keep it authentic to the culture and also to the history of Chicano art in museums and then um you know i think we it was really important that the peterson that they supported that and you know allowed that to happen
0: that's awesome in fact that's that's one of the the main reasons why i was uh, so excited to to give you a call that that exhibit was so cool. My wife and I made it down to go check it out. Uh, a friend of hers did a, a painting of her car for the show, and. Uh,
1: uh, which car was that? Was it Alrod's?
0: Yeah, yeah, the, the purple the pur- car. Mhm.
1: Yeah, the 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 Chevy. Yeah, right? yeah,
0: fifty-seven. That's my wife's car.
1: Yeah, cool. That's so awesome. I didn't know that. That's pretty awesome. I know Alrod's amazing.
0: She's great. Yeah, well, I actually got a She's chance amazing. to interview her on this podcast too.
1: Mm-hmm. I know, I think her work is so amazing. And then also how, yeah, she's just also choosing sort of women as subject to as well. And, and um, images of, you know, images of empowering images of women that I think is really important. And that was also important that we had like 10, you know, women artists in that show, um, and that 10 ob- pieces of art by women artists, I should say, and I think that was really imp- important for me.
0: That's that's cool. One of the the really impressive things about that show to me was just how like inclusive the uh, the exhibits were. You know, I I know I'd, I'd say a, a okay amount about low riding as it comes to cars, mm-hmm. but not so much as it does to to culture. Uh, I, I'm coming to it from custom cars, and yeah, we've only you know I've only my my family had a, a business. We go vend at car shows, and we set up at a. Mm-hmm it's like a street low show or something like here, something like that down here or up here. And, uh, it was nice and the cars are fine and stuff, but there's this, uh, this sort of like machismo, like tough guy, hyper masculinity vibe, which is really off putting, uh, for, you know, to, to go out and, uh, and find yourself in the, in the middle of that. And the, the Peterson thing didn't seem to have, have any of that. In fact, in, uh, I forget which one of the books it is now, but that, someone wrote about that directly. I thought that was really cool that it wasn't just uh, that a lot of people were seeing the same thing.
1: Yeah, And it's funny because as a woman, I would say car culture in general is very macho. Mm-hmm. I read it completely different. So, um, yeah. So I think like in general, there's machismo in car culture or in hip hop or whatever. It's just sort of it's a dominant American. It's not specific to to low writing um, but there's a lot more women in the low riding scene now and things are changing, you know? So I think it's, like, I don't know if it's machismo or it's just, like, our culture's obsession with sort of, like, hyper-masculinity that exists at all levels from, like, music, athlete culture. Um, car culture is also a part of it, too, as well, so.
0: Cool. Sorry. Hello? Yeah, sorry, sorry. Cool. So, so we were talking about the, the Peterson that was around 2000 this latest show is in 2018.
1: Um Yeah, so there's been three shows at the Peterson. We had Art in Estilo in 2000 like January to like June of 2000. And then um The High Art of uh, The High art and Low is the latest one. That was from July of like 2017 to like September of 2018, but then the second one in between that was um Oh my god, La Vida Lowrider cruising the city of Angels. And that was in uh two thousand and seven.
0: Oh, I remember seeing seeing stuff about that. Yeah, that, that one yeah. looked really cool too. And you're doing uh something now with, with motorcycles, is that correct?
1: Yeah. Uh it's uh Viva Viklas, it's at the Contemporary Art Museum in Raleigh, North Carolina. It'll be closing in a couple weeks, but it's sort of the first sort of Lowrider exhibit lowrider culture exhibit on the east coast and it's wow. um it's focused on lowrider motorcycles and it's the first time i have sort of looked at lowrider rider motorcycles so that's why it's interesting what you were talking about machismo because i feel motorcycle culture in general has more machismo than lowrider cars <laughs> you know mm-hmm. um there's just something, it's, it's sort of like lowrider low rider car adjacent, you know, vehicles, motorcycles, um, fascinating, but it was um, interesting to like, you know, there, it's affiliated, but it's also its own distinct culture with like its own rules, its own codes of the road, um, and I think even more so than low rider culture car, they're definitely keeping up sort of like that Pendleton old like cholo look more Mm -hmm. than lowriders because lowrider car clubs, I mean, they wear their t-shirts, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, they don't really keep up that aesthetic. So I found, I found like the aesthetics of the Vika culture really fascinating.
0: Yeah. It's really interesting. I One thing that I I didn't know when it started, uh, Harley Davidson started, making a motorcycle called the lowrider or at least yeah. a, a kind of the FX series in 1977.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they still like put, put that out. Yeah. And that's in it. And that's also what's very different is like a lot of the Viklas are Harleys. Um, and I feel like Harley does support it. They do support that culture and um, you know, riding a motorcycle, it's more, like affordable to customize it. More women are doing it um, versus like a car, right? It's really hard to buy early Chevys. That's really expensive. And then to have the money to take it to shop to shop if you don't know how to customize it, right? Sort of prevents people from sort of owning that. But um, I think the motorcycles are a lot more affordable because they're customizing like, you know, I think the oldest that we had in our exhibit might've been an 07 one. So I mean like that's not old, right?
0: right? Yeah it's neat it's neat for a company that's been around so long like Harley to recognize that there's a you know a, a market for something that's a little bit custom um,
1: Yeah not... and I think like support yeah and then also like supporting it as well you know because you could definitely see that like just like with low riding you know aesthetically and culturally there's like tensions with hot rods and low riders like over there is like choppers versus low rider right mm-hmm. But just like with hot rod and low riding, you could see how the cultures also um, inspire each other in sort of customization style and paint styles too as well.
0: And are, are you uh, like affiliated with a, a club or, or a, a car or anything like that? I, I don't remember. I apologize.
1: No, I'm okay. not. I'm affiliated with the Chicano studies.
0: <laughs> Makes sense. <laughs> I, I went to uh to San Francisco, State up here, and they had such uh, yeah. pride about starting like the uh the ethnic studies program there. Yeah, yeah.
1: It's, a, it's such an amazing history on that campus. It really is. It's and it's still like it's such a important campus still to this day for like supporting sort of um, ethnic studies and social justice um, actions. And yeah, it's a great yeah, it's a great campus.
0: It's good weather too. <laughs> San
1: Jose well, State, too. Yeah, San Jose State's great, too. Yeah, and I mean, like, the the founders of Lowrider Magazine graduated from San Jose State. And um, uh, Sandy Madrid was working at San Jose State when he got the idea to start Lowrider Magazine. And so I think it's so important to think about how, you know, Chicano studies, how the ethnic studies in the Bay Area also inspired um sort of the founders of Lowrider Magazine, you know, because they were also putting on uh, car shows versus our Chavez on that campus. And, um, you know, obviously, later on, they brought the magazine down to Southern California. But, you know, it definitely started in the Bay Area, and sort of the, the politics of that sort of 60s and 70s um, social justice, civil rights movements, right, that, that
0: were part of that. Oh, um, i I completely uh, lost my train of thought there for a second. So we were talking about uh, Lowrider, which started at uh, at San Jose State, and it looks like Lowrider magazine, along with a ton of other print magazines, is getting killed off. Yeah. It's it's so wild. Like I, I guess social media and you know just their online publications are, are taking over for all that. Yeah. But a magazine like as culturally important as Lowrider, it's it's just interesting to think about how how much things have changed i guess there's no um like no one has a monopoly on information anymo- anymore so you don't necessarily have to have a magazine to get out your, your, yeah, your ideas yeah. and your i culture. think it also
1: leaves it yeah and it also leaves it open like if there's you know people that'll start sort of those grassroots sort of z- zines or magazines which people are also doing all the time but I feel like lowrider culture is not dependent on the magazine to survive. Like guys would be lowriding regardless if there was a magazine or not. But I think like what it adds is this sort of layer of which they haven't answered that question. I mean, lowrider magazine, you know, has the super show every year, September in Vegas, right. That sort of crowns the lowrider car of the year. I mean, there's like a whole car car show circuit that's tied to that, that I think um, that to me is, what's even more important, what's going to happen to that, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that remains the seen.
0: Do you feel like the, the politics that Lowrider Magazine came out of are, are a part of it, um, what's the right way to say this? How important do you think politics are to low Writing?
1: Like, politics in which sense?
0: Well, my, my take on, like, the, the earlier mm-hmm. bomb low writers is that it's a political statement where people are looking back. So I, I wonder how much politics played into, like, the evolution of the, the lowrider in the 60s in in the, like, the bomb aesthetic, because that's, they're looking back quite a ways back to, you know, the late 40s, early 50s. To me, that seems like, um, you know, it's it's the late 60s, politics are, uh, you know, identity is becoming really important. I think it's, really like,
1: important. more, I don't even know if it's, like, I mean, the thing is, I think what you're pointing to is, like, you can look at nostalgia as political, and I would argue yes, right? Because it's sort of this nostalgia looking at sort of an earlier time. Nostalgia, one, and sort of, like, claiming our roots, because obviously our roots as Chicanos, Mexican-Americans go back, you know, over 100 years, or even for some of us whose family has been here before it became the United States— um, but I think like the lowrider car and the pachuco, why those are sedimented is that these were these cultures that developed sort of this pride in being Mexican-American, right? Where who's, who of youth that were not Mexican, their parents are Mexican and yet they're American, but they were not being accepted in America um, because of all the racism that existed in the early 20th century. And so it's the same way of sort of thinking about why is in African American culture there's also even in hip hop you have this nostalgia returning to the past, right? Looking at the past, and so I don't know if it's unique, but I think it makes sense, particularly for cultures and histories that experienced racism. Um, you know that you know, Mexicans became part of this country as war. You know African Americans are brought to this country because of slavery. Um, I think looking in history and even modern cultural spaces of music, art, car culture, um, poetry, whatever, um, how we reference the past, you know, carries in those elements that what you say could be read as political, you know, um, but I think in the end, it's like how in the present are we continuing to connect to the past and why are we connecting to the past? What's mm-hmm. important about that? Because it's there's a resource in that of claiming sort of we are right to exist here because that is the world that we're living in where we're constantly still having to fight, whether I be as a woman, fight for my own rights or as African-American or Chicano or a poor person or LGBTQ person. Like everything that we do, our everyday life is political, right? Mm -hmm. So it makes sense that cultural spaces and what we participate in are also going to carry in those realities um, and how they look and how they're visualized. To me, it's important that how we unpack, you know, what is, what is political, right? It's very complicated, yeah. but I think to unpack it, it connects back, right? To like, why to me, these cultural spaces are not just in the now, they're connected to the past. And there's a reason why people are engaging with history or historical moments, right? Because it also reveals a history of cultural resistance, which all communities have, right? Is like, if you're poor... Um, If you don't have rights to the media, like, what are you going to use, right? Back in the day, people started with what they had, their bodies, their cars, to tell their stories, um, to create community, and that still exists. You know, you think about hip-hop and how it started in the Bronx in 74. It's like people started with their bodies, breakdancing. They didn't have museums. Oh, we're going to use graffiti, and we don't have instruments, so we're going to manipulate records, and our voice become, you know, the the tool that we use right to claim space and to talk about our history and our realities so i think like i think that's why american culture it connects to other people around the world right especially like hip-hop and low writing um because it allows people in other countries to use that form but to tell their stories using an american form right low writing is an american tradition hip-hop is american right and so I think it's interesting how like those are two cultures that just globally have made an impact. I mean, hip hop a lot more than low writing, but <laughs> but um, there's a reason why, right? Because I think it's it's it's, it's accessibility of it, particularly with hip hop, um, uh, for people to like create space, right? And to like name their experience. And that's why I think it's fascinating that low writing as it moves around the world um, to different parts of the world, like, you know, and some of them have American cars and some don't, right, over there? Uh, but they're still sort of drawn to that aesthetics because they read it as different than their own, you know, um, outsider. And I think there's something about being an outsider of resistance that's important.
0: Oh, yeah. God, I was watching a, a video of like a Soviet Lada dragging through a parking lot the other day. Um, I remember I took this really awesome class when I was in school on uh, Latino music. And mm-hmm. the this this idea and I, I apologize, the word is not coming, but it's the, the word for how like uh, people would would map over like their Arisha to their Catholic saint, like the way they would find it, the way to make the old religion work under the, the control of the new one. Uh, what in the world? is Oh,
1: it? like uh, syncretism.
0: Yes, yes.
1: Yeah, syncretism. And yeah, it's, that's mm-hmm.
0: a huge part of of Latino culture because in, in Latin music you've got the the tres races, right? There's Spain, Africa, and the indigenous people of the Americas. And it's there seems to me to be just something about this this blend of cultures that works. It's so flexible like, that that people can see that like people love Mexican food around the world because it's delicious. And it, it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's
1: a... But yet people love, in the US, they love their Mexican food, but they still want to build that fucking wall, right? So it's that contradiction. <laughs> <laughs> so I wouldn't use that. It's that powerful. Sure. I mean, it's, it's it's something that people get enjoyment in, but they don't want those people living next to them or seeing them, right? So that's good old American racism <laughs> at its core. But I think like syncretism or cultural blending, it is American culture. American culture is, I would argue, it's all mixture, right? For all of this movement of like, you know, we're losing values, white American values and all this. Like, I, it's like a myth, right? It's like, as you go back and you're like, uh, black culture, you know, is like the face of American culture around the world, right? Um, mm. Back in the day, we had, you know, we didn't have hip hop jazz, right? An American form a black American cultural form. Was a global force, right? And the U.S. the U.S.O. used jazz musicians to build their global relations around the world, right? So, um, So Leo, you know, I think it's true what you said. I mean, I think I would argue that Latino culture is not unlike a lot of cultures around the world. That's a result of blending, you know, but that does also doesn't erase. If like, um, I can only speak of specifically Mexican culture,
0: mm-hmm. but
1: that doesn't mean that there isn't racism in Mexico, right? Or there isn't oh, sure. racism in Latin America, right? Because um, through our colonization process, that's how we were sort of learned sort of white supremacy and white privilege, right? So right. if you look at who's the most oppressed in Mexico, it's the indigenous, right? Just like in our own country here.
0: Right, right.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, but that's a great question.
0: I, I think it's so interesting. I'm I'm third generation Italian American, and mm-hmm. my family ditched our culture immediately you know the first generation born right. here didn't speak uh, italian uh, we anglicized our last name to celeste from celeste and yeah like we and then my you know my family moved just progressively across the the country till i was born here in california sort of on my own with no uh, culture of my own and i the idea that these cultures are so strong and they're they're passed on and it, it I don't know I, I geek out on uh, Latino culture so much because it's it is the world that I was born into at in California and it was Yeah, only... yeah,
1: and I think that's the thing too is like when you grow up here in California it's like yeah, you have to try really hard not to interact with Latino culture. Right. right. <laughs> <laughs> but yet people do and people are putting, but sometimes I think there's like more recent arrivals that don't get it. But it's like, if you look, just like in the Bay area, LA is the same, where it's like, you know, blacks and Chicanos and Asians and whites. We live side by side and interacted for years and years. You know, there's a long history of music and dance sort of interactions. Um, so like, I don't completely buy into the sort of myth that like people, there's all this inter-ethnic tensions. But um, but I think exactly what you said is like, that's what makes California so great is that diversity allows you to interact with different cultures and take some of those cultures into your own identity, right? Right.
0: Yeah, yeah I, I, I can't speak to the experience outside of California or really outside the Bay Area, but the the community I'm a part of, now is is very inclusive and it's so big and like it's uh i I don't know what it is it it seems like like the latino part of the culture is sort of what brings a lot of people in california together i don't know maybe maybe yeah and i think
1: and it's interesting because like both oakland and la right of sort of dealing with gentrification and the impacts of that you know remains to be seen of how it's going to change right the cultural yeah. milieu mm-hmm. of of these of our communities you know because like I also think of Oakland as a very black town mm-hmm. you know what Perfect. I'm saying like uh more so than than LA um and so even that right is sort of um under attack with sort of like gentrification you know when you think about Oakland you have that history of like the Black Panthers right mm-hmm. and a long mm-hmm. a long history of of African American um, political activism as well.
0: Yeah, we have the just a you know street or two over from me is where the East Bay Dragons Clubhouse is. And they're they're a, a huge deal, a, you know, a black motorcycle yeah. club.
1: Yeah. Awesome. That's cool. I know I feel like the whole um like African Americans just have a really long history in motorcycle clubs. You know, like about it might have been about, like, 10 years ago down here at the California African American Museum. They had an exhibit called Black Chrome. They <laughs> had a catalog. If you get it, like, you should get it. It was It's about a little bit bigger than the size of the Arte Nisilo one, but it was so good. And that's when I learned that, like, yeah, there were, like, black motorcycle clubs, like, in the 30s. Like, the first African American women were, like... A, Part of it too, as well. And there was like a woman, the first one to like ride cross country. I think it happened like in the 30s or 40s. It was just, I learned so much. It's just so fascinating, right? Because then you have to put that, like that history in the context of the Jim Crow South, right? And the civil rights movement. And how I think motorcycles, there's just a freedom of motorcycles in the road that you just do not have in a car, you know? And I think that was something of doing the Vikla show. You reminded me of like, It's just different, you know. You're so much more connected to nature, environment. It's much more dangerous. Um, you become part of the bike. It's just kind of like the old west, you know. It's kind of like riding a horse, the iron. Ho- that's why they call it the iron horse, right?
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Because with cars, you're so protected, and you interact with nature and everything differently too, you know. Um, but it's just fascinating, like the 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 different. Yeah, the different cultures, motorcycle, car, um, but I think that's a fascinating history of the long history of African American um, motorcycle clubs. You know?
0: Yeah, definitely. So, um, you mentioned gentrification. I think that's something that's been on a lot of people's mind. Like things are changing so fast in Oakland. It's it's hard to recognize downtown these days. It right. Seems, seems like a month or two will go by and there's another apartment complex popping up. Uh, what does that look like out by you?
1: like Oh the same way cuz the the same the same money that was up in the bay area is now in LA so like LA is changing fast it's fast and furious man I hate to use that <laughs> but it really is so um yeah it's in intense right now so like um like even my apartment building was sold and I had to move and mm-hmm. it's uh yeah all around the downtown area and they're building just like over there like they just build those sort of like apartment complexes that are like four or five stories high and then they'll put like you know the the retail space below right it's Mm -hmm. like it's like a total like format
0: yeah totally
1: and I, i don't know where all these people are coming from but like just my neighborhood in highland park that i left like within the last, it started changing within the last 10 years, but I would say super accelerated within the last six. And it's mostly white people, not from California. Yeah. And, and so then they sort of have, like I would, I would prefer white people from California because then it goes back to what you were saying, you know, Latinos existed, <laughs> you know, that <Yeah. laughs> it's diverse. It's like, they come to your neighborhood and they cannot, they just have this sort of elite attitude. You know, it's really crazy. And it's even weirder because I don't know if how it looks like over there, but the hipsters are, you know, they're wearing like, look like secondhand clothes, you know, <laughs> they look like they're poor, but I, but I'm like, why, you know, but they're not right. Because they don't even, it's the day. And like, they're in coffee shops, restaurants, nobody's working, you know, everybody's socializing. I keep thinking like, what do they do for a job? You know,
0: <laughs> right. I don't know. Yeah. It's, it's complicated. Oakland, Oakland's one of those towns where I've learned that you just speak to everyone the same way because you don't know if someone's like a, a hipster millionaire here or they just got off the street. Like, you can't judge people based on what they look like here. But the the housing thing to me is really confusing. I mean,
1: it's scary because it's what we're talking about. It really is like affordable housing, right? Yeah, um, accessible I, housing. You know, it's like where people shouldn't be working where 70, 80% of their check is going to, where they're gonna live, you know? Um, It's, that's a disturbing part of gentrification. So then what does it do? Where does it push people out? Where do these people go? I don't know. In LA, we've had an increase in homelessness increase, like skyrocketing people living out of trailers, um, living in parks, um, living around the LA river, which is like not really a river, it's like a concrete river, you know? So um, I mean that's the effects, right? And people like not. And I mean that's why I thought it was impressive that the governor put that uh, extended the rent control, right? Yeah. Um, buildings in 1989, you know, um, because it was just it was going crazy in California, you know.
0: Yeah, I I was I was really surprised. I don't want to go too political, but this is local politics, so it's all right. Because Newsom, uh, when he lived, when he was mayor of San Francisco, he moved to uh, the hate. And he, he immediately passed the sit lie law and the city uh, said, no, he went around them and took it to a vote and got it passed. And so like, since then I've had this like, ah, uh, new some really like, and I I'd held that against him for a really long time, yeah. but I'll, I'll be damned if he's not doing the right thing with housing so far. I mean,
1: yeah, so far. I mean, it's not like he's perfect. Like with right. any politician, right. It's like, he's good on this, bad on that. But yeah, I mean, I was surprised that, that that happened you know and and so like I moved I could have stayed in my apartment but I was like I'm moving because I'm like these assholes that own the apartment like they're your landlords like Mm -hmm. I don't trust them right but there were so many at least I had the luxury to move but there were so many Latino families in my building that like couldn't you know um so I'm I'm happy for them like that I hope that this law will help them but we'll see but I think in general you know um i mean to sort of get back to sort of like car culture i think like it sort of impacts you know i think to have cars and to customize cars takes money right so i think Mm -hmm. the connection to gentrification is is like if people are spending their money on housing right or just cost of living like how do you have money to like customize right or be part of like car culture so um i mean that remains to be seen right
0: yeah yeah for sure i mean how. A big part of the reason we ended up buying in the neighborhood we did here is so we could have a garage. <laughs> like there was oh, no, cool. there's nothing downtown where you could park a car. So yeah, we're we're out here in the in the flats where we've got t- detached garages, and it's fantastic. But that's yeah, that's great. That's our our weird hobby shaping housing. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, that's awesome. So then, um, so then you are a hot rodder, right?
0: I I'd say You're a custom hot-rotter? car guy. I never built anything okay. fast.
1: Okay, cool. No, I just watched this weekend that movie, the Ford vs. Ferrari. Oh, yeah? Did you see that movie? Did you I, see it?
0: I didn't see it. No, I, I've been meaning to check it out, but.
1: It's really good. I was surprised <laughs> how much I enjoyed it. Um, but it was, yeah, like Matt Damon and uh, Christian Bale, I mean, they're amazing actors. But yeah. yeah, it was just so, I didn't even know that. Like, you know, I didn't know that Ford, like, got into the racing business because henry ford's son was like insulted by mr ferrari (laughs)
0: pretty much yeah it seems like a lot of car company rivalry drives a a lot of product
1: (laughs) yeah but it was interesting it was just it was a good movie but it made you think about like um yeah just like about corporate control because that movie dealt with how ford was trying to like corporatize sort of um they're winning, you know, and, like, spin it, and uh, then that sort of takes away from sort of, like, the competitive side of, like, the racing, you know, mm-hmm. and all of that, but yeah, I learned a lot, like, I didn't know about that Shelby guy who had designed all those cars, and they had a car named after him, I was like, so I, I learned a lot in watching that movie, but I, it, overall, it was just an enjoyable movie, you know.
0: Cool, I'll try and check that out. So, uh, what what sort of stuff are people working on at a at your school, in your, in your department these days? Like, are cars still, uh, are cars still popular with kids?
1: Um, I would say that, like, I don't know how it is. Like, I would say to get back to the slogan I used, I would say that like the fast and furious Mm -hmm. world that of the movies has impacted, you've seen car culture, right? Mm -hmm. Where I think like this younger generation and you even see it on the road. Like everybody thinks they're like Vin Diesel, right? Or something, you know, Fast and the Furious. So I feel like they're, it's more about fast cars, right? Or like drifting, mm-hmm. right? Um, I, every so often I get a kid that's into car culture, but typically they're like using cars that they drive. So they're more like recent cars. Um, but um, like old cars, I don't see it so I mean, it, it takes... It either takes money for old cars or you have to have connections, right, to sort yeah. of get into that. So I would say in general, like, most of my students are, like, first-generation college students. Mm-hmm. So if they're in car culture, they're, like, you know, using the cars that they drive. Like, I, I've had students that were into those. Um, where you know, they I don't even know what it's called, but they take, like, the 80s Hondas and they soup them up. They do drifting with them, but I forget what it's called.
0: Oh, I'd call it a drift car. <laughs> I don't know too much about yeah. it. though.
1: no, but they like you. They like like eighties Hondas, like eighties early nineties, because they're like easy, easier to like make the modifications on. Mm, I think it's sense. before like the Hondas started putting like computers and stuff on their cars, right? Huh. Um, but yeah, I, I've seen that. But in general, I would say like. I see more skateboarders than I see, like, students in car culture. Yeah. Skateboarding big down here. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, it was big at my school, too, but it was just a spread-out campus. <laughs> yeah. it's cool. One, one really neat thing about going to a state school, I know they're, like, not everyone appreciates them as much as they should, but I went to almost exclusively 1st gen, or I went to school with almost exclusively first-generation immigrants. So... Yeah. The, the amount of, of culture that you get exposed to, like my my partner on my senior project, uh, immigrated from Cambodia. Like his family uh, mm-hmm. fled Pol Pot.
1: Yeah. And
0: it. The state schools are awesome. If anyone's looking for culture, that's that's a great place to find it.
1: Yeah, I mean they're very they're very diverse. Exactly, they're very diverse, and I feel like the state schools right now, we are the the campuses for working class students, and that's why it's disturbing to me to see what's happening at the CSU of the move towards privatization and Mm -hmm. getting money from the outside. And they're wanting to raise admission standards to like on some campuses to 3.0. So you're thinking like, okay, who are the students that we're gonna pull from? You know, and even if a student doesn't have a 3.0, doesn't mean they can't make it here, right? Right. So it's becoming like they're trying to follow the model of what the UC did and the UC system did in the late 90s and early 21st century that changed the demographics. And so it's disturbing and we're fighting it, you know, um, because they're making, like, for instance, Cal State LA, uh, they're limiting where we can even uh, draw students from. So, like, there's certain... Uh, neighborhoods in LA that we can't uh, accept students from or they or, uh, it's just crazy so everything that you said that like what we valued like that's what I feel is under attack you know in the next 10 years
0: mm-hmm. okay.
1: and it's already started is what I'm saying
0: yeah that's
1: so it's like that question is our is our campuses are they going to remain to be diverse for me it's like it's just also a class thing, right? It's like working class students can afford to come to the CSU and still even work, right? A lot of my students, they work um, full-time, part-time and go to school. Um,
0: Yeah, I did three jobs at mine.
1: (laughs) And that's gonna change, right? If they put in these sort of different admission requirements or even just on a basic level, just raise tuition, right? It it also um, cuts off the chances for, students to attend, you know, or because like California, their whole move is like, oh, they should go to the community colleges, but California doesn't fund their community colleges. They're not building more community colleges. So there's going to be people that are pushed out of community colleges because there isn't space, right? Yeah. It's going to take you 10, 10, 15 years to get out of the community college.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I was in community college for eight years before I transferred. It's-
1: Oh, really? Yeah. No, I transferred in like one and a half to Berkeley. I was like, "I'm not staying there. I'm like, I needed to bounce quick
0: yeah, I understand no i was I was an engineering major, and they didn't offer classes every yeah. semester, so you had to like bounce around from yeah. school to school and it was exactly
1: yeah, it is it It's like a institutional barrier right? right to uh to getting through in a timely manner for sure,
0: yeah, definitely. One thing i was I was thinking about while we were talking about uh you know the the ethnic studies protest like the the b s u did at s f state and then uh uh the the chicano movement around the time Lowrider magazine started at San jose state and one thing that I, I keep seeing, which seems sort of novel now is that eventually people listened at one point, and I don't see that now i don't see I don't see student protests paying off in any mean, meaningful way, and it's incredibly disappointing.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think people, like, their their definition of, like, protest is different. Like, there is something about having physical bodies in a space or action versus, like, just putting your comment on Twitter, right? <laughs> or creating memes on Instagram. So I think, like, that is definitely something that, like, I always tell my students that, you know, they always tell you that knowledge is power, but... I argue that the real power is what you do with that knowledge Hmm. and that you have, we have to be like, you know, active agents for social change and social justice and it's action. You know, it's not, and if a previous generation put their bodies on the line to create access for us here at the CSU, like we have to continue that tradition, you know, because the students 50 years ago were thinking about this generation students. Right. Yeah. Um, And so I think that that, and I think that that, um i think it's just shifting the mindset because this millennial generation or whatever they're calling now generation z i don't know it's always changing right um i think that seeing themselves as part of this larger collective action like sh- shifting it you know and, and and it it's happening you know i i i'm very I, for all the like attacks I think on millennials, I'm very hopeful because I feel that they're very creative. I see my students, they're very creative and very artsy and um, critical thinkers. Um, So I'm
0: hopeful. I'm technically a millennial. I call myself in the rerun generation because I was born in 85. So I'm not quite a millennial. Like we saw out analog and saw in digital. No,
1: yeah, 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 you're not. Yeah, (laughs) I think you're at the cusp of like Gen X too, which is my gen. Right,
0: right. But yeah, I and I grew up watching like your generation's movies and TV shows on rewind or on on reruns. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah.
0: But uh, I one thing I know about my generation is we're incredibly skeptical, we grew up through a lot, and it, I don't know that people are looking to. Build a better country 20 years down the road that come from my generation. A lot of us just see things as pretty doomed. I don't think as a whole we're as uh, inactive as the stereotype of Gen X, but we're pretty bad. (laughs) Like we could be doing a lot better.
1: Yeah, and it's crazy because like I don't see that so much in my students because when my students are first gen, a lot of them were either born here or they were brought here when they're babies, but most of them were born here and their parents are the ones that you know, immigrated here at 12 and 13 or undocumented. And so for my students, it's they know that they have to work hard. They know that they're not just there for themselves, but they're there for their families. You know, when you have parents that are working two, three jobs, you know, as gardeners, as maids, as the most under economy jobs that they can get, like, these are my students. This is their family, right? So for them, it's like, they're not skeptical. They're, they're filled with hope and like hard work. So, uh, I feel lucky.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's a refreshingly optimistic way to look at that.
1: Yeah. Well, I have to, man. I mean, I wouldn't be doing this if I don't. There's so many things happen in our world where you don't give you hope that you have to, you know, you have to, you have to have that spirit and you have to be doing work that contributes to that, you know? Of creating change, you know, in, in, around issues of social justice.
0: Sure, sure. I'm anticipating doom and gloom is a self fulfilling prophecy.
1: Exactly. <laughs> like, I, I mean, I always still love that quote, uh, the quote, that great quote by Gandhi of like, you know, you have to be the change that you want in the world. And so I think that's uh, when you sort of are given to gloom and doom, you're disempowering yourself. You are. You are tying the lock on the chains, right, and you're you're accepting it versus like you refuse to see that right you if you 're not seeing possibilities you 're not creating change, and that is how the other side wins by your own sort of nihilism feeds right sort of the the world that we 're living in. They count on people that give up
0: I always, I always try to find a good way to wrap these up although that that last part I think was was pretty awesome. Um,
1: well, I think on the other side, I think a good way to wrap it up is thinking about why culture matters, you know, why pop culture matters, why does car culture matter, or music culture, <laughs> or fashion culture, I think it's like, it allows us to sort of get back what I said towards the beginning, it allows a space to sort of redefine and negotiate their everyday lives, um, to create identities and create community in a world that oftentimes they feel displaced or marginalized. So I think that pop culture has a lot of power because it starts with the people, right? So like what we were even talking about before, like, you know, well, there's no Lowrider magazine, well, we'll still low-ride without that, right? If corporate Mm -hmm. America decided, oh, we're not going to use hip-hop culture to sell products, you think hip-hop culture would go away? No, because it was always about the people, right? Right. I think that when it crosses over and there's more – corporate uh, influence on our culture and impacting it, that's the problem. I think the more that it stays sort of with the people to define it, to have the power to create sort of the worlds they want. And I think worlds is a more accurate description of what we have in the United States, but that it is one that is about sort of um, recognizing the diversity, right, that exists in the United States. And I think that low riding has a long tradition of sort of creating sort of the individual identity but community identity as well and even though it's sort of affiliated with mexican-american culture you know african-americans white guys also are low riders and so it is a very diverse um, culture because it's the love of cars that brings people together and i think that that there's power in that as well right is that people through their love of cars, they're able to learn about each other, learn about their different cultures, take on some of new cultures into their identity. And, um, and so I see it, uh, that is then radical politics, right? Of popular culture.
0: Awesome. Well, there, that, that's perfect. That's why you're the professor of this. Thank you so much this is a lot of no fun. thank
1: you yes um good luck let me know how it goes cutting and pasting everything together
0: <laughs> okay for sure so all right I-
1: well it was great talking with you um and uh, keep in touch okay
0: all right that's it that is episode 25 thank you guys for listening and thank you so much to professor sandoval for your time uh, what a special episode i was so excited to get this one out there uh, i'm Like I mentioned in the podcast, I'm a real big history geek, and the the fact that there's this open question in custom cars is just mind-blowing to me, you know, like, to to think that in 2020, in this time where we have instant access to information, I could go on, you know, a a car builder's Instagram and figure out what they're building today, that we have this chunk of automotive history, like, really from, you know, the 1930s till the 1960s or, or 70s even, that was never really documented uh, in the first place, like the early lowriders, the early, uh, you know, the the Pachuco cars of the forties. It's so fascinating to me. And it was a really unique opportunity to to speak with someone on this episode that really knows what they're talking about. I have so much respect for academia. You know, the uh, college professors have to work so hard to prove a point. You know, they have to do uh, actual and new research. They have to defend topics uh, to other experts so uh, Professor Sandoval's opinions uh, really uh, carry a lot of weight with me, and I have so much respect for her profession. So what a cool opportunity. What a cool chance for all of us get to, you know, to, to get taken to class for an hour and hear um, an expert's opinion on some of these topics. So that's it. That's all I got. Thank you guys so much for listening, and we'll catch you next time.